Hello, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. So we have made it through yet another week, and not as crazy as the past couple of weeks, but there has been some pretty momentous stuff happening, especially coming out of the Supreme Court. So let's go ahead and start with where I always start, and that is with the unemployment numbers. Um, for the week of June 13, we have an additional 1.5 million new unemployment filings, which is a bit disappointing. It had been trending downward over the past couple of weeks, and now it's kind of flatlining out at 1.5 million a week. I was hoping for it to drop down a little closer to 1 million because we were starting to see some pretty significant drops week over week. But some good news that did come out on the employment front, uh, we did start getting that granular data from the May jobs report. And one of the questions that a lot of people had, um, I know I discussed this uh, probably a couple of weeks ago now, maybe a week ago, but there was an unexpected uptick in the amount of jobs added during the month of May. And there was some question about whether this would be something of a localized sort of phenomena with the the jobs being located more in the states that opened up first versus being a nationwide thing. And so we were waiting for that data to come out. And it seems like it was pretty much well spread over the entire nation. Um, in the month of May, 46 states added jobs to their employment and unemployment numbers fell in 38 states. So that kind of answers that question of, is this a nationwide phenomenon or was this more of a localized phenomenon where you had maybe a couple of states that had really big upticks and it was kind of skewing the whole nation's numbers. So some good news on that front. Like I said, I, I'm still not pleased with where the unemployment numbers are because that's still a lot of people week over week. I mean, at this point, I think we are over 40 million people on unemployment right now. And like I said, I was hoping for that number to drop. But if the May report is any kind of indication, hopefully we will see some more positive movement when we go back and look at the month of June. The only thing that worries me about the upcoming June jobs report is because of Everything that has happened this month, especially in places where there has been rioting, you are going to see an uptick in unemployment numbers in those places for obvious reasons. I mean, if you've got places like New York and Minneapolis and Chicago and L.A., where you have destruction of businesses, obviously that's going to affect the unemployment numbers. So I don't know how much of that to factor in, because like I said, it is definitely going to be a localized thing. But in those localities... I imagine you're going to see some pretty significant hits. And I know I've gone on about this enough in the past couple of episodes about how I feel about rioters and looters and all of that. But to bring this into a more employment-based sort of rant, this is why that kind of behavior is so destructive. Because right now, we do not need anything that is going to negatively impact unemployment numbers. Like, this just it's not the time. We cannot afford to do anything that is going to cost this economy more jobs than have already been cost. Stop it. Just stop. And and thankfully, it seems like it has pretty much died down to a point where it's not this widespread sort of thing that you saw a couple of weeks ago. But like I said, I, I imagine it is going to have some impact 
on the June jobs report. How much? I don't know. I'm crossing my fingers that hopefully there's been enough positive economic activity going on that's going to at least offset that and that maybe we'll see another jobs report like we saw in May with a surprise uptick in jobs. Hopefully, like in May, it was an uptick of 2.2 million. Maybe we'll see for June, maybe closer to 3, 3.5 million. That's my hope. Again, it's it's so weird and it's hard to know. And like I said, nobody really expected that from May. So crossing my fingers that June's job report, when it comes out, which will obviously be like the first-ish week of July, first week, week and a half. So fingers crossed on that, that we will at least start to see some sustained growth in the economy and some sustained growth in jobs so that maybe we can start to try to get out of this massive, 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 massive hole that we are in right now. So going on to where I left off on the last weekly roundup, and that is with Rashad Brooks. And I had predicted at the end of my last weekly roundup that the conversation surrounding this particular incident was going to be particularly ugly. And surprisingly, there's not been a lot of conversation at all, really. And I don't know why that is, because if you want to go back and listen to the last weekly roundup, I explained what happened at the end of that one. Um, I do still stand by the fact that this particular shooting, I think, is going to be one of the more controversial ones because there is that question of, well, were they were the police acting in self-defense? Were they not? Where did the bullets enter? Like what? I mean, the whole situation could have entirely been avoided. Obviously, absolutely. There's no reason for this to have escalated from a guy being asleep in a Wendy's drive through to him being dead. Like that's absurd. There's no way on God's green earth that should have accelerated to that point. But it did. And there have been ongoing protests in Atlanta based around the Brooks killing, obviously, because it happened here in Atlanta. And we were already having protests about George Floyd and police brutality that had been going on for weeks prior to that. So I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been more of a national conversation about it. Maybe it just hasn't happened yet. Maybe people have fatigue about this. I certainly hope not. I certainly hope people aren't tired of talking about police brutality because we need to talk about it until it stops happening. That is the only way this is going to happen is if people keep up pressure on cities, on states, on the federal government to do something about this, to try to either rein this in, to defund police, to abolish police, if that's what you want to see. Just it, the, there has to be a sustained pressure campaign. So I really hope this isn't something where people kind of pay attention to it for a couple of weeks and then they kind of burn out and move on. But going back to Atlanta and the response from the city to this is obviously the police chief stepped down. Uh, the officer involved in the shooting was fired. And over this past week, he was charged with 11 counts, including felony murder and aggravated assault. So, again, I know this is a bit of homerism because this is Atlanta and this is my city, but I have to say there is still that marked difference between how Atlanta handles these sorts of situations versus how they're handled throughout the rest of the country. Like, especially in the Breonna Taylor case, um, just this past week, and mind you, it has been months months since Breonna Taylor was killed by the police. They're just now getting around to 
putting one of the officers on administrative leave. Like, are you fucking kidding me? And that's a pattern that you see across the country. But somehow Atlanta manages to somehow land on the correct square in this. And I've never, I mean, I've always thought Atlanta was different and a little special, but I didn't think it was to this extent. Like, obviously, you can make an argument. And there have been people who have made this argument. Um, There's been senators or a senator congressperson, some Republican who tried to make the argument that this is all political and that he shouldn't have been charged until after GBI was done with their investigation. Um, You've had APD officers allegedly, because this is also depending on who you ask, have allegedly started to call in more frequently and kind of walk off the job. APD has said that this isn't that, but you see these other reports of cops just kind of refusing to do their jobs. And again, this is not just Atlanta specific. You see this in every city where any police officer is being held responsible for some sort of misconduct. You're starting to see this this pattern of cops either walking off of specific task forces or saying that they're going to quit their jobs or quitting their jobs. And it's like, are you kidding me? Do, do you really? Like, as the kids say... Read the room, guys. You're not getting any sympathy right now. Nobody's feeling particularly bad for you because you want to throw a hissy fit because somebody got punished for screwing up at their job. Everybody gets punished when they screw up at their job. Cops shouldn't be any different. So there's this this growing kind of cops versus civilians thing going on. And there's was two just entirely stupid, stupid, stupid incidences this past week. The first one being that in New York, um, the NYPD Detectives Union decided to tweet out that some of their officers went to a specific Shake Shack and that their food was tainted. Apparently, they said, or it was, I, I think they did point blank say at one point that their milkshakes were contaminated with bleach And I don't know, allegedly they got sick. I never saw any kind of reports of going to the doctors or going to the hospital or anything. Um, Eventually, actually, the whole story got walked back. And it basically said that, yeah, that didn't happen. Um, When NYPD investigated, they found no criminality on the part of Shake Shack. Um, It seems like if anything did happen, it was some kind of honest mistake in cleaning the milkshake maker thing. Apparently, I've never worked in fast food, so I'm not entirely sure how this works. But apparently, you're supposed to clean out the machines like several times a day for cleanliness purposes, you know, hygiene, and you got different regulations that you have to show that you clean the machine at this amount of times, blah, 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 blah. And that maybe the machine didn't get rinsed down as well as it should have. I don't know. But apparently, the whole story kind of got walked back of course, after everybody lost their shit at Shake Shack. And it's it's another one of these stories where if you pay attention, there's there's been plenty of these. Like the, the one where the cop said he went to Starbucks and they put pig on his cup, but it turns out it was a mobile order. So the only way that that could have been on the cup is if he would have said in the app to put it on the cup. And then there was another instance a while back of a police officer saying that, oh, I went to McDonald's and I ordered a hamburger and I got it and there was already a bite taken out of it. Well, come to find out, uh, he took a bite out of it and forgot 
But of course, you put it on the internet and it turned into this big whole thing. I'm like, oh my God, look at these people fucking with cops food. Like, like a minimum wage employee has any kind of like incentive to try to lose their job over trying to fuck with someone's food. Like, come on, people, let's be real. And then, of course, there was there was <laughs> depending on which hashtag you follow, it was either Officer Karen or Officer McMuffin. But the video of the lady cop who, as it turns out, works for a county here in Georgia, who was just having this absolute fucking breakdown because she went to McDonald's at the end of her shift. And okay, fine. It's the end of your shift. You're tired, whatever. She places a mobile order through the McDonald's app. You know, you go through the drive-thru. They messed up her order. And then they, they forgot her McMuffin. And they only brought her her coffee. And... At that point, she was just apparently just too overworked to even accept anything from the McDonald's because she was afraid they were going to mess with her food, which, again, who who has time for that? Who has time to risk their job right now to mess with your food? Like, but of course, that went viral. And a little frightening that somebody that close to the edge emotionally is walking around with a badge and a gun, but you can't handle McDonald's screwing up your order, which... I mean, there, there was nothing put on offer that there was any kind of evidence that they were messing with her at all or even messing with her because she was a cop. Mainly just sounds like sometimes you just get shitty service at McDonald's and it happens. Like it happens to everybody. It's not anything personal. And I'm sure during the morning rush at McDonald's, they're very busy. There's there's a lot of people in line. Like, you know, things happen. Like you can't take everything in life so personally, but that was another one of those instances where cops go out there and they they try to make this story about, oh, my God, the fast food workers are messing with my food. And it's like, stop it. Stop it. Oh, my God. Anyway, so back to Rashad Brooks. Um, Sorry, that got completely off topic, but <laughs> that's what happens here. I'm I'm still kind of surprised that there hasn't been more of a discussion about it. And like I said, maybe this coming week, I I don't know. I, I don't really know what to make of that other than just kind of surprised, especially since we're already in this moment where we're spending so much time talking about police brutality. And then you have this legitimately controversial case. And it's been kind of like crickets. Um, I saw Kat Timpf talked about it on Fox. That's nice. But by and large, there's just been not much media discussion about it. And I've not seen much discussion on Twitter or anywhere on social media. And it's the silence is kind of weird to me. I don't, I don't know what to make of that. I don't think I like it though. I mean, like I said, we, we have to keep up pressure on this stuff. We have to have these conversations if you want anything to change and no, it's not fun. And yes, it's tiring. And yes, it sucks to have to watch yet another video of somebody being killed by a police officer. It's not fun. I've said this on multiple occasions. It's not fun to watch this stuff. It's not fun to have these discussions, but it has to be done. So I will continue to talk about it and hopefully other people will eventually talk about it too. But anyway, moving on from that to the slate of Supreme Court decisions we got this week. So on that front, I will go ahead and start with the bad news. Um, the Supreme Court decided to not take up any of the cases involving qualified immunity that they had in front of them. 
And they also declined to take up any of the cases involving Second Amendment rights that they had. Um, I was very hopeful that we would get something, at least one of the cases involving qualified immunity. Um, I don't know why they chose to not address any of this right now, especially given the current climate and the fact that they did have several cases that they could have chosen from to explore the concept of qualified immunity that they created and to maybe fix the mistake that they made when they kind of set up this whole qualified immunity standard. Maybe they felt that it seems like Congress might do something about it, but still, I mean, that doesn't just because you think another branch of government is going to also take up the same issue that you're going to take up. I don't think that's really a great reason to not take up an issue, especially when, to my mind, and of course, I I absolutely support Congress doing something about qualified immunity. I absolutely support Justin Amash's bill. I hope that somehow or another, this actually does come to a vote and it makes it through the House and through the Senate and lands on Trump's desk just to try him on the fact that he said that he will not sign any legislation that involves ending qualified immunity. I say test him on it. But this is a mess that the Supreme Court made. So I feel like it should be incumbent upon the Supreme Court to fix the mess that they made. So them punting on that, I felt was, that sucked. I I wasn't pleased about that. And on the the Second Amendment cases, kind of what Second Amendment advocates were hoping to see out of this is there were a couple of cases in front of the Supreme Court that would more specifically define what an individual's Second Amendment gun rights are on a federal level. I mean, once we, we had Heller, which established that, yes, individuals do have the right to own and bear arms, but... Over and beyond that, there's not been a lot of talk on the federal level of what exactly does that mean in more like practical real world situations? Like in what situation do you have the federal right to have a gun or to use a gun? And so a lot of 2A advocates were hoping for some cases to be taken up on that level to start really kind of making those federal definitions of what is and is not acceptable. So they didn't take any of those cases either. That sucks too. But here are some of the cases that they did take. Um, Both of these fairly controversial for different reasons. Um, The Supreme Court ruled that a business, an employer, cannot discriminate against an employee. They cannot fire an employee on the basis of their sexual orientation or their sexual identification. Now, this all hinges on the part of the Civil Rights Act that says that you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. Gorsuch wrote the opinion on this, and I'm going to try to explain it because there's a big argument between the whole idea of textualism and originalism. Those who have opposed the ruling on this case have said that this decision was not in line with what those who wrote the law meant for it to mean. Like they weren't addressing sexuality or sexual orientation or gender orientation when they were saying on the basis of sex. Here's where Gorsuch came down on this. And I tend to agree with this because it's uh, here. Let me, let me explain what his rationale was and then I'll explain why I kind of understand it. Gorsuch said that If you you have this law, it specifically says you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. 
if you have, say, a man who marries another man, if your employer has a problem with that, but say you have a woman who marries a man and the employer does not have a problem with that, the only difference here is the sex of the person in question. It's not the it's not marriage. Like if you don't have a problem with a woman marrying a man, if that's not something that would be considered a fireable offense, then why should a man marrying a man be considered a fireable offense? You see, you see what he's saying? Like that that you can't divorce someone's sexual orientation from their sex. And so if you are going to say that I am firing you because you are a homosexual and you have sexual relations with a man, but you would not fire a woman for doing the same thing, then that is discrimination on the basis of sex, because that is how we define sexuality when we use these terms. When you say somebody is a homosexual, you're saying that that is a person who is of the same biological sex as the person that they're attracted to. Like, you can't divorce the two issues. So Gorsuch basically is saying, I am, I'm going by what the law says. Like, this is what it says. You cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. Discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation is discrimination on the basis of sex. Therefore, that is illegal. Like, he's basically saying it says what it says. And so, like I said, the argument against it is that when they wrote the Civil Rights Act and they put that in, they weren't thinking about things like homosexuals in the workplace or trans people in the workplace, which that's kind of the other aspect of this decision, was there was a trans woman who was living her life as a woman and was fired from her job because she would not conform to the male dress code at the job where she was working at, which makes sense because if you're living as a woman, like why why would you be dressing like a man? You would be dressing like a woman because you're living as a woman. So that was kind of the other aspect of that one. And that one's I mean, you can't you can't discriminate against people for wanting to live their life in a certain way just because you don't like it. There has also been a lot of discussion about where this leads religious organizations. And from what I understand, in the next session, there is a slate of cases where this topic is going to be taken up and where there perhaps may be carve-outs made for religious organizations to be able to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation because it also would infringe upon their religious liberty. It would infringe upon their 1A rights, where obviously, say, if you had a church and they had a school and they said, I don't want to have any homosexual teachers at this school because that goes against our religious beliefs. Like there might be a carve out made for that. That kind of remains to be seen. And it's going to be, I imagine, a very tough kind of tightrope to walk because you have states that do this now where there is that carve out for religious institutions but then you also have people like well if if a if a secular business can't do it why can a religious institution do it and vice versa like there there is that dichotomy and that in the one and first amendment rights do come into play here so how that's going to be decided will remain to be seen but as it stands right now and this is probably something that a lot of people didn't even realize was a thing you can do 
until this past week, no, you cannot fire someone on the basis of their sexual orientation. Sounds like a weird thing to have to, like, explicitly say in 2020, but here we are. Um, another case that didn't happen, that didn't get as much attention as I expected, but uh, the Supreme Court declined to hear Trump's Sanctuary City case, which this has been a case that's been winding through the courts now for at least a year, maybe longer, where the Trump administration has basically tried to, through the legal system, make it illegal for states to establish sanctuary cities. The Supreme Court basically said, no, we're not we're not hearing that. We're letting the Ninth Circuit stand, which has told Trump that, no, you cannot dictate to a state or to a city what they do and do not allow within their borders, which is the correct stance that federalism is it's fun, people. Everybody loves federalism until it's a decision that they don't like. But that's federalism. Like you can't tell California that they can't have sanctuary cities. It's their state. Like they get to make those rules. So that one got handed to them. And then the second one that was kind of a kick in the teeth to the Trump administration is that the Supreme Court ruled that as it stands right now, the DACA program will still remain in effect. Basically, what the crux of this lawsuit was and the crux of their decision was not that the Trump administration can't get rid of DACA. I want to make this very clear because a lot of people have kind of misconstrued this. They didn't say that the administration can't do away with the program. They said that the administration went about it in the incorrect fashion. And so therefore, they cannot support what the administration has done. So that's not to say that they won't try it again. But as it stands right now, the DACA program is still in effect. Uh, legally, there is some question about how USCIS is going to handle this logistically, if they're going to allow people to to re-sign up for it or to sign up for it for the first time. There's some question about how that's going to go down. But per the Supreme Court, DACA is back on. The point that I want to discuss with these cases, especially with the Sanctuary City case, the DACA case, and even tying back in to the census question to, uh, case, um, if you remember, the Trump administration wanted to put a question on this year's census specifically pertaining to the citizenship of the person filling it out. The Supreme Court decided that, no, you can't do that. And it's not that they were saying that you can't do it because you can't do it. They were saying that they can't support this because the Trump administration went about it in the incorrect fashion. And they kind of, that case was kind of weird and convoluted and complicated, but basically saying that, well, since you basically showed your hand and that you're doing this for kind of messed up reasons, we, we can't support this. Like you're, you're, you're making one argument, but you have these memos saying something entirely different. So we're not, we're just going to throw the whole thing out and no, you can't do it. It's interesting in that I feel like there's almost, maybe not a concerted effort with the Supreme Court, but an effort to push back on executive branch overreach. And for what it's worth, this is not a problem that started with the Trump administration. I mean, this goes back several administrations to where the executive branch seems to feel like they are superior 
to the legislative and judicial branch and that they can operate with impunity to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. And now this is three cases where the Supreme Court has decided that no, the executive branch cannot just do whatever, whenever. Like there are procedures here. There are rules. There are ways in which if you want to do something, you have to do it the correct way. You can't just be like, well, we're the executive branch and this is what we want to do. So fuck you. And it's interesting to see a bit of judicial pushback on this idea of trying to remind the executive branch that they are not superior to the other two branches, and that the same way that the judicial and legislative branch have to go through the correct channels in order to get things done, so does the executive branch. I hope this is a trend that continues. It's a trend that does not make Trump very happy. He has been very displeased with these results coming out of the Supreme Court this week, um, to the point of basically saying that we need new Supreme Court justices, which, dude, you've already, you've put two of them on the bench, and one of the ones you put on the bench wrote one of the most important decisions that is probably ever going to come out of the Supreme Court, barring anything else crazy happening, which God only knows what other stuff is going to end up in front of the Supreme Court. Oh my God. Anyway... It's I, I like it. I, I like the idea of the Supreme Court yanking back some of that executive branch overreach. And I hope in the future there are more cases put in front of the Supreme Court based around that idea that the executive branch has overstepped their boundaries just to see how the Supreme Court will react in those cases. Because somebody somewhere along the line has to do something about the executive branch just running wild. Like somebody has to put their foot down sometime. And since it doesn't seem like Congress has the balls to do it, maybe the Supreme Court will. Like maybe the Supreme Court will finally be the people to start to put the the parameters back around what is and is, is not acceptable coming out of the executive branch and kind of reining them back in and reminding them like, no, you can't, you can't just do whatever you want whenever you want to whoever you want. Like, somebody has to tell them no. So that was kind of the most exciting part of the Supreme Court decisions this week for me. And obviously, making sure that DACA stays in place. Congress still has to do something about immigration, though, because as I explained, this is kind of a temporary thing. Like, there's nothing stopping the Trump administration from basically backing up and trying again and doing it right this time. I mean, there's nothing stopping them from doing that. Whether they will, I don't know. I mean, right now it is June. The The election is in November. Immigration was one of his biggest issues that he ran on in 2015. He swore up and down that he was going to get rid of DACA. So what's going to happen there? I don't know. And that is why Congress really needs to either take the DREAM Act back up again or even more preferably, do comprehensive immigration reform that does address the status of these people who were brought here as minors and now cannot get any kind of legal status outside of the DACA program because Congress just refuses to take up the issue of what to do with these people or what to do with immigration writ large. Like So much of the reason why there is sort of this executive branch overreach is because Congress just refuses to do its job. And so that's that's another problem, too, that needs to be addressed. But it would be nice 
If Congress did immigration reform and did something to create a permanent status for these people so that they can move on with their lives, like no matter what you happen to think about immigration or what the legal status of these people should be, I think they deserve to have something permanent in place so that they know like what to do. Like how, how are you supposed to make plans as a person? How are you supposed to do anything if like your status is perpetually in question? How are you supposed to make future plans? You know, like somebody needs to do something permanent here to address this situation because it's not going away. I mean, and you're not, you're not rounding up and deporting these people. I mean, that would be so, so politically suicidal, not just from an optics perspective, but also from an economic perspective. I mean, you're talking roughly 800,000 people. You're going to round up and deport 800,000 people who are working, who have jobs right now? Do you know what that's going to do to the economy? Like, no. So something needs to be done on a permanent basis. Hopefully, maybe Congress will take it up one of these decades and do something for these people. Because, I mean, what what do you want them to do? Like, if you were brought here as a kid, that wasn't your choice. And so what, you're going to send them back to some place that they've never really actually lived and they don't know anything about? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, just uh, there's got to be some kind of permanent solution. So moving on from that, because Lord knows I've talked about immigration enough times on this podcast. You already know how I feel about it. Moving on to Bolton's book, which I could have swore this book was already out. Time is such a flat circle. And I feel like we first started talking about this book like 10 years ago, but apparently it is not out yet. It is supposed to be out on Thursday. And so over the past week, there have been, as as such things happen when books are starting to come out, there are parts of it that are being leaked out to the press as basically, you know, advanced PR and stuff and to build a pipe for the book. Um, According to Bolton's book, apparently at one point, Trump was taking a meeting with President Xi from China and... I'm not entirely sure how this conversation happened, but apparently she was explaining to Trump about building the concentration camps for the Uyghurs. And Trump basically was like, yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense, dude. That's a good idea, which obviously that's horrible. Here's my question. I I don't know how much Trump really processes things that people are telling him. And he has a nasty habit of just agreeing with whatever the person in front of him is saying. So I don't really know if what she was saying was really like making it through Trump's skull into his brain. And he, did he realize that dude was explaining like how he's going to build concentration camps and put ethnic minorities in them? Like, did he really comprehend this before he like agreed to it? I don't know. Maybe I'm giving Trump too much credit or too little credit here. I'm not sure, but... That was one of the big blockbusters. Um, there's been a couple of other things that have come out. Um, <laughs> one thing that's not super flattering to Bolton is that he's still pissed off that Trump didn't start a hot war with Iran, which Bolton's always going to Bolton. Like Bolton's always going to be mad that we didn't start a hot war with someone. But apparently this book is coming out on Thursday, despite Trump's attempts to make that not the case. Um, He filed suit against Bolton personally, and I believe he also did file suit against Simon & Schuster, but mainly against Bolton personally to stop the, the publication of this book and to stop it from going to the shelves. So 
the court ruled that no, you can't stop this book from being published for fairly obvious reasons. Like you, like we can't say that you can't publish this book. Like that would be an, an infringement upon Bolton's one A slash free speech rights. But what they decided was that since it seems that parts of this book violate an NDA agreement, that any proceeds that Bolton might have gotten from this book, he will not be getting. I'm sure he'll be appealing that because obviously you don't write a book unless you plan on making money. How I feel about that. I mean, I'm glad the book's coming out. Will I read it? Hell, I don't fucking know. Maybe, probably. I I haven't thoroughly decided yet, but I'm still a little irritated. And if this book is half as incendiary as it's being made out to be, I'm probably going to be a lot more irritated that Bolton waited to publish a book about this versus testifying in the impeachment proceedings, which remember those? Remember this one time at the beginning of the year? We had impeachment proceedings and Bolton refused to testify. It's like, if you knew this stuff, and, and that's not to say that any of this would have changed the outcome of the impeachment proceedings, because like I said, when I was covering it, I mean, that die was cast before the first day of hearings. Like you already knew how it was going to end. And that's not to say that it shouldn't have been done, because obviously there's you you should do the right thing for the right reasons and not necessarily because you think you're going to get your preferred outcome. But Bolton still should have testified. I'm sorry. You should have, if, if you're going to say this stuff, if you're going to put this out there, you should have did it under oath when you had the chance to do it and when possibly maybe it could have affected something. I mean, that's that's just my feeling. So I'm not... Not entirely mad that he's not making money off of this book, but I am kind of mad. But I'm not, because, I mean, everybody wants to be, like, Team Bolton now. Like, every time, like, Bolton does something anti-Trump, everyone's all in love with Bolton. I'm like, no, he's still an asshat. John Bolton is still an asshat. Like, I'm I'm not going to shed too many tears if he doesn't make any money off of this book. But at least the... (laughs) That that was just another legal L that Trump got this week. He he took a lot of legal losses this week, and yeah, you love to see it, especially when you're suing somebody to keep them from publishing a book because you don't like it. The president of the United States should not be doing that. No, and I you can say uh, national secrets all damn day. You know damn good and well that ain't why Trump filed this lawsuit it's because he just doesn't want this book out like you already know that you know who you're dealing with and so again the court smacking down that idea that you get to do that is reassuring because of course the president of the united states should not be having any kind of opinions about what books do and do not get published i i don't care if it's about him fine whatever like people are gonna say shit about you whatever you don't get to like shut that down legally that would create such a horrifying precedent that oh my god i don't want to even contemplate what would happen if the court said that yes the president of the united States can file suit in a court and get a book unpublished no i don't want to live in that world but moving on to The last bit of news I want to discuss, and that is the Trump rally from what was originally going to be June 19th that was moved to June 20th because 
here's the thing. It was in Tulsa, and it was originally scheduled for June 19th, otherwise known as Juneteenth. And if you're not entirely understanding why this was a controversy, Tulsa was the site of the worst race riot in U.S. history. Um, Hundreds of people ended up dead. Hundreds of black people ended up dead. um, Decimated a whole community of black businesses. So obviously scheduling a political rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Juneteenth is quite possibly one of the most tone-deaf things you could ever do. Like, ever. And so it got rescheduled when, I guess, somebody informed Trump about how bad of an idea that is. And I don't know. I'm not charitable enough anymore at this point to think that scheduling a Trump rally in Tulsa on Juneteenth was entirely an accident, whether it was done for publicity or whether it was done to make a statement. Because, I mean, that's a that's a pretty specific dog whistle right there, especially knowing what everybody assumes about those who attend Trump rallies. Uh, that's just I I mean, I just I, I'm failing to see how something like that could be entirely a coincidence. Maybe Trump himself didn't know. I mean, I don't imagine that Trump knows anything about Juneteenth or about the Tulsa race riots until somebody just told him. I'm like, that part I can entirely believe. But somebody scheduled that rally for that day and that time. And yeah, that's a little sketchy. So anyway, it got pushed to the Saturday night. And... There's kind of two stories about this, and I'll take them in order because one of these things happened before the rally, and then one of them happened during the rally. Um, In the lead up to the rally, the Trump campaign was out here touting the very large numbers of people who were putting in ticket requests to attend the rally. And I mean, it was 600,000, it was 800,000, it eventually made it up to a million people, allegedly a million people who had requested tickets to attend this rally. So, as it turns out, and there was, when I was doing research about this to try to find out exactly how one gets a ticket to a Trump rally, I found an article in Business Insider that was from like over a week ago talking about how this was happening. Apparently, a bunch of people on TikTok, and it spread out past TikTok onto Twitter and other forms of social media organized this campaign to go and do ticket requests with the intent of not going to the event. Like basically to to kind of flood the zone with people who were not going to go in order to create an empty building. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this because I the more I think about this, I've I, I think we might have uncovered something a little bigger here. So we, we get up to a million ticket requests. And from what I'm able to understand is that anybody who requests a ticket gets a ticket. It's not capped at any kind of reasonable amount that would make sense from a logistics perspective. Like if you're holding an event and you can only hold X amount of people at the event, you would think that even... Even if you're just doing this for like data mining purposes, this is also requesting tickets to an event. And like, there's only so many people you can have an event. There's, 
There's safety regulations, there's fire codes, there's all this kind of stuff. So I would say, logistically, you would cap your ticket requests at capacity plus maybe, I don't know, 2,000. Just in case there are people that don't go or can't go, you have other people that could go. There was apparently no cap on the ticket request system for Trump rallies. So I'm starting to, so, so I'm sitting there thinking about it and I'm like, who the hell sets up a system like that? Because again, if you're, you have to kind of base your ticket request in reality, I would think, and I'm thinking like, what if 50,000 people showed up to this, which is obviously way less than a million, but the venue itself could only hold 19,200 people. And then there was an outside overflow area set up, which I would imagine probably could have held another couple thousand people. So I would say probably logistically, maybe in the 22 to 23,000 could have physically attended this event. You allowed a million people to request tickets to an event that could not even host 25,000. So I'm thinking, I'm like, huh, that doesn't make much sense. But then the more I started thinking about it, and this is a thing that Trump has done for ages. And there's always this touting of the pre-rally numbers of how many people have requested tickets. And I've seen screenshots and I've seen people talk about how they as individuals were able to get 10 tickets, 20 tickets, more tickets, like way more tickets than an individual person with one name and address and email should be able to reserve. Like, obviously, if you are reserving for an organization, you don't go through that system. You call up the campaign and you say, hey, I would like to reserve a block of X amount of seats because obviously you would like your whole organization to be able to sit together too. So you have to kind of plan that out with the campaign. So I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. But then I started thinking, what if, and this is entirely my conspiracy theory, I have no evidence to back this up, but this is just what makes sense to me logistically. What if the lack of a cap was not a bug, but a feature? And what if this has been going on the whole time and just nobody ever questioned the numbers because up until this past rally, Trump has always performed in front of capacity crowds. So you don't really question the amount of people who requested tickets versus the amount of people who were there because it reached capacity. So even if you had like this excessive number, the explanation would be, well, well it was at capacity. We couldn't let any more people in. What if people have been inflating these numbers the whole damn time and we just never noticed until this past one because this past one did not reach anywhere near capacity? So now I'm side-eyeing like every number that the Trump campaign's ever put out about their rallies because now I'm thinking like, well, if a bunch of kids on TikTok can figure this out, I, I would imagine people who have a more vested interest in inflating these numbers probably already knew about this loophole too. And I don't, I don't know if the TikTok kids knew about the loophole. I would imagine not because then it would kind of defeat the purpose of their campaign. But once you kind of find that out, you got to start asking yourself some questions like, um, okay, how long has this number inflation been going on? And the, the Trump campaign was more than happy to tout these insanely huge numbers 
for an event that could not even remotely host this many people. So I've got some questions. I got questions about how this system exists and if it's been manipulated before to inflate pre-rally numbers to an extent that it was not entirely real. Like, did did the TikTok kids just bust out the Trump campaign for inflating their pre-rally numbers? That's my question. Like, did they, like, fuck around and find out that there's this, like, loophole where there's no cap and so you could... You can request as many tickets to a Trump rally as you want, irregardless of whether the people can actually be at the event or not. Did we just find out something? But anyway, do the second story. And that is the actual number of people that showed up to the event. So like I said, the venue itself, and this was an indoor venue, which that's that's my first question. Like, what were you thinking? Anyway, it's an indoor venue rated to hold 19,200 people. The amount of people who were actually in the building was 6,200. So, obviously, you have an optics problem here because you have these pictures of a half-empty... I mean, at that point, that's not even half-empty. That's almost two-thirds empty, roughly, math-ish. And the outside venue that was set up for overflow was taken down before the rally even started because it was obvious that it wasn't going to be needed. So that stage was deconstructed before it was even used. So you have these pictures of this half empty, like not even half empty. I need to stop saying half empty. That's more than half where Trump is giving this rally. The more I think about this, this is just like the weirdest unforced error I think I have ever seen this campaign do. And for all of Trump's fuckery and for all of the campaign's fuckery, one thing that they are on it about, that they are very, very precise and cognizant of, is not letting Trump be in an empty room like that. These rallies are always set up and staged to have as many people as possible because they need the optics. They understand how this is going to play in the press. They understand what it looks like. These are stage managed down to the microsecond because the point of them is to project a certain image. This did not do that. This did the opposite of that. And I'm wondering why why somebody in the Trump campaign didn't realize that this was going to be a bad idea. Like, I don't know if it was hubris that they, they thought that they were going to get this massive crowd in our current situation. And, I mean, obviously, COVID is still here. There's been people trying to float the idea that, oh, people didn't want to show up because of possible protest. And also that the wildly inflated numbers themselves kind of deterred people. Because, obviously, if you think you're going to a place where there's going to be at least tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people, you're probably going to be like, eh, screw that. I don't want to go. I don't, I don't want to deal with all that. So you just don't go. I, I don't, I don't understand this. Like, cause this is just such bad optics for Trump. Like he did not go there to play to a half empty room. He did not. And there's video of him getting back to the white house this morning. And he looks Like, if you didn't know better, you would think dude was coming home from, like, a day of drinking that started around noon and ended around four in the morning, because he's looking a little rough. 
Like he's getting off the plane, the tie's untied. He's got his Make America Great Again hat in his hand. It's not on his head. And he's looking kind of kind of worse for wear, a little dejected, a little like he needs to go lie down for a while. And I'm just like, there were so many other ways that if, if Trump just had to have this rally, which apparently he's just been chomping at the bit to have rallies again, uh, people thought that maybe this will like, be a little pick-me-up for Trump, which I'm like, is this really what we're having to deal with right now as a nation? We have to worry about this dude's ego. Even if you wanted to do all that, like, why not do, say, an outdoor event in Florida or Texas, both of which are going to be battleground states this year? And he could have sold it and packaged it in a way, especially if you wanted to do like Florida, say you wanted to do an outdoor event in Florida and you could go and say, I I don't think COVID is that big of a deal, but I, I worry about my supporters. So what we're going to do is we're going to have this big, beautiful outdoor event in Florida. You're going to love it. It's Florida. It's June. It's going to be so nice. You can bring your family. You could have a cookout and we're going to show America how we're going to make America great again. <laughs> I still can't do a good Trump, but in all reality, like he could have did that. Like he could have done an outdoor event. And even if you would have only got 6,200 people, 6,200 people at an outdoor event looks a hell of a lot more impressive on camera than 6,200 people in a building meant to hold over 19,000. Like the optics are way, way better. And he could have pitched it as this like more party festival atmosphere. Like you bring the kids, we're going to have food, maybe to do, we can still do social distancing too, so that we can look like we're, you know, we're with the program here and, and everything's cool and we can still do this and be safe. But that, that choice wasn't made. And I'm kind of baffled as to why it wasn't. Because like I said, this is a campaign that is so, so concerned with image and optics that they would have even have risked this outcome seems really weird to me. Like, I don't even know why you would run the risk of having these photos out here when you could have avoided it. And maybe, like I said, maybe it is hubris. Maybe he really thought that like 19,000 people were going to be willing to go pack themselves into an indoor stadium to see him talk right now. Like nobody wants to do that. And maybe, maybe he doesn't understand when people are saying that they want to end the lockdowns and get back to normal life, they mean like going back to work and maybe going back to school and doing small social events, not jamming into a freaking stadium. Like nobody wants to do that right now. Like, like, like nobody's crazy. Like I, I wouldn't go do it. And I think really that's what it comes down to is a lot of people were just like, I'm not going to an overcrowded indoor event. Like, because that's kind of crazy. Like, even if you think it's entirely overblown, like, are you really going to take that risk? Are, are you really going to be like that much of somebody who wants to get into like a dick measuring competition about this and be like, I don't care so much that I'm just going to go jam in with like 19,000 other people into a small building. Well, not a small building, but you know what I mean. And apparently the answer is no. And that should kind of be the answer, but... Yeah, this was just weird. And from what I understand, the substance of the rally, I don't think we learned anything other than, 
we know now that the president can drink water out of a cup with one hand. And we're still talking about the time where I, I don't even know what the hell this story is, but about the time they apparently almost busted his ass walking off of uh, Air Force One. Like, I, I don't care. I don't give a fuck. If, if he would have fell, I wouldn't give a fuck. I mean, who? I, whatever. We've all fallen down ramps before. It happens. Whatever. Things are slippery. There's no handrails. I, whatever. Shit happens. But I don't know if there was anything of substance learned other than him saying that he wants COVID testing slowed down so that the numbers decrease, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought he had expressed that at some other venue or some other time. So I don't even think that is particularly new news. But this was just, this was just a weird, weird unforced error by the Trump campaign. And I'm really interested to see what is going to happen going forward with Trump rallies and how they're organized and where they're organized and whether we're going to see any attempts at a large scale rally again for a while, because this is embarrassing. Like this has got to be a bit embarrassing for Trump. This was supposed to be his big comeback to having the, the big Trump style rallies where you have these capacity buildings and the overflow areas and everybody's there and it's team MAGA and everything's great. And so this was kind of like, oh, I guess we're not doing that anymore. So we shall see. But like I said, I, I mean, have them outside. It's summer. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, it's like, why do you even want to have them inside anyway? Like, that's just, nobody wants to be inside right now. Nobody wants to be inside. People have been inside for months. People want to be outside. So just hold the rallies outside. Like, that just makes so much more sense to me. Maybe I should be in charge of this. Anyway, not that I want to be in charge of anything having to do with Trump's campaign, but like basic decisions here that could have been packaged and sold in such a way that would have been much more appealing than what he's currently trying to do. I don't know. Anyway... At this point, this has gone on long enough, and I think we've discussed everything that needs to be discussed, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. If you did make it this far, thank you for listening as always, and if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care, and until next time.